Thank you, Jim and Debbie. I was looking at my computer and looking at some headlines, and there was a headline that caught my attention. Uh, headline uh, stated basically, new DNA research points to Adam and Eve theory. I thought, well, that's sort of biblical. That would that'd be interesting to, to read. And um, this isn't the entire article, but here's, here's a portion of it. A new report from experts at Rockefeller University along with the University of Basel published some extraordinary findings on human evolution. The research was led by senior research associate Mark Steckel and research associate David Toller of the University of Basel in Switzerland and came up with what Toller admitted this conclusion is very surprising. The study concluded that all modern humans descended from a solitary pair who lived 100,000 to 200,000 years ago. Yes, you heard right. The study suggests Adam and Eve. Yes, every person was spawned from a single pair of adults living up to 200,000 years ago. Steckel and Thaler, the scientists who headed the study, concluded that 90% of all animal species alive today came from parents that all began giving birth at roughly the same time, throwing into doubt patterns of human evolution. The conclusion throws up considerable mystery as to why there was a need for human life to start again such a relatively short time ago, especially since the last known extinction we know was during the time of dinosaurs 65 million years ago. So there, as I, as I read this, I, I, I thought two things. First thing I thought was, huh. I don't know if that, you can identify with a huh. I went, huh. And I thought, that's interesting. It, it, it's interesting that, that somehow the biblical account that's, that's been, hey, this is, this is metaphor, this is whatever. Now we're going, well, well there you go. One, one couple, 100,000 years ago, scientists now found out that's where we came from. You and I were all related the second thing I thought about is how fascinating it is when I think about just the fact that we are here, that we are created, that we are created beings. How did we get here? What, what formed us? Why are we here and what, what purpose do we have? So reading again from the passage that we'll be looking at today uh, in, in John, John chapter 1 verses 1 through 4. The Apostle John begins his gospel in this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. The word, of course, is, is the Greek word logos, and John is using this word logos to uh, communicate to us how God communicated to us through his son, Jesus. In the beginning was Logos. In the beginning was the Word. So these majestic and awe-inspiring words launched the Gospel of John, who is Jesus' most beloved disciple. John writes these words in, in, in this most beautiful way. And the trajectory begins here on earth and then stretches over the galaxies. And in the course of these words, John introduces us to the architect of all creation. See, the story of Jesus doesn't begin in a manger in Bethlehem. The story begins before the beginning of creation itself. Frank Turek, uh, in, in what I think is a marvelous and, and thought-provoking book uh, that is entitled Stealing from God, uh, Why Atheists Need God to Make Their Case, um, he begins, and it's a fascinating book. I can't even begin to share all that's in it. I, I would recommend it. It's great reading. Uh, he begins in chapter 1 with the subject of causality. What, what, what 
brought us here in the first place. And the question that is the foundation of this thought is, how did I and all I see around me come into existence? And Turk writes, the scientific evidence now is so strong that even most atheists agree that the space-time continuum we call the universe had a beginning. It's sometimes referred to this as the Big Bang Theory. And Turek says that that leads us back to the one of the centuries-old arguments for the existence of God. And it's called the cosmological argument. How did, we, how did all this come into existence? There are three posits to, to the cosmological argument. Everything has a beginning. You had a beginning. I had a beginning. The universe had a beginning. What we see around us and, and all the creation... And then the third, third uh, part is that, therefore, the universe had a cause. Something made it. Something created it. There's, an old, uh, there's a Latin phrase called ex nihilo, means out of nothing. And God, we find in Genesis 1 account, created us and the world and the universe out of nothing. Reminded of uh, the old Rodgers and Hammerstein musical, Sound of Music. There's a song in that um, uh, that, that has this line, nothing comes from nothing and nothing ever could. God created us out of nothing. And John begins the, this gospel reminding us that, hey, we, we are part of a huge story. And Turek goes on to say in his book, since nature had a beginning, nature cannot be its own cause. The cause must be beyond nature, which is what we mean by the term Supernatural. John, of course, the fourth gospel in the New Testament. And, and if you read the uh, story of the coming of Jesus in, in Matthew, you've got the story primarily of uh, the angels coming to Joseph uh, and, and, and Mary and um, the, the visit of the Magi. Uh, when you get to Luke, you have the story of uh, going to Bethlehem and, and, and the shepherds and the manger. Uh, Mark, interestingly enough, doesn't mention anything about Advent at all. The Gospel of Mark just starts in, talks about John the Baptist, and it begins with the ministry of Jesus. John, the Apostle John, uh, sort of does the same thing as you look at the second uh, part of the first chapter of the Gospel of John. But he begins by taking us back way before the coming of the Messiah to earth. He takes us back to the beginning. So the Apostle John explains to us that the cause is none other than Jesus himself. In the beginning was the Word, Logos, Jesus. The Word was with God, the Word was God, and nothing came about outside of this creative power of Jesus himself. So Advent is more than the coming of a baby. It's the story of the Creator, becoming like one who is created. It's the incarnation, John informs us. It's, it's not just good news. It's mind-bogglingly magnificent. Jesus is the one, John says, who started it all. So we come to this Advent season, and what John wants us to see is more than a story of redemption. We've, we've spent this whole 2018 talking about the life of Jesus. If you've been with us throughout this year, it's all been focused on Jesus, what he said in his ministry here on earth. John wants us to see it's more than just a story of redemption. It's a story of a relationship and relationship restored with God himself. And this relationship begins with the very act of creation. 
So there are three aspects that I want us to look at of John's description of Jesus just in, in these first three verses of, of John 1. Qualities that bring all of our lives, I think, uh, some, some meaning and, and, and purpose. First one is this. Jesus is the one who initiates our relationship with God. He is the creator. Jesus is, is the creative force that formed the universe. John informs us that Jesus was present at the beginning, not just as a passive observer, but as the divine power that created substance out of nothing. And he's the one who not only launches the universe, but begins to introduce, us to introduce God to us. He takes, Jesus takes the first step. He takes the initiative. I, I met my wife in 1975, which is quite a long time ago when you think about it. Uh, we've been married 42 years, be 43 years is coming May. And uh, we, we met in Colorado. Uh, we were both part of, of a uh, uh, parachurch organization, ministered uh, to primarily college students at the time, Campus Crusade. And uh, we both were assigned uh, to be teacher's assistants for what we called our Institute of Biblical Studies. We had some biblical classes that we took our staff through, and I was a teaching assistant. And um, as I showed up, I come to, come to find out that uh, there were about 25 of us who were teaching assistants. Only two were women. And uh, one of those women was, was I found out, was uh, a, woman, uh, a young woman called Renee. And uh, I got to know her uh, because I was, I, well, I just got to know her. She was... Uh, she caught my eye. And uh, I remember thinking, oh, okay, well, this is, this is interesting. And, of course, I'm single. Found out she was single. I had to check that out first and found out she was single, which was, blessed me. And um, we had our offices as we uh, began to go through that summer and, and began to do the work of teaching assistants. We had our offices just down the hall from each other. I discovered that as well. We were on this, in this dorm uh, area where we just made these dorm rooms into offices. And I found out she just about three doors down, down the hall from me. So one day, I think it was the spirit that led me, I just went, I'm going to go down to that office, right? And I'm going to just sort of see what's up and, and uh, see what Renee's doing. I walk in the office. Uh, a, another staff man is there, Ray Meister. And uh, he looks at me and he smiles and he goes, here's one now. I said, what are you talking about? He says, well, we're just talking about single staff who don't, don't ask the single staff women out for dates. I said, oh, well, this is, this is of God. So um, I looked at uh, Renee. She was seated at her desk. I said, oh, yeah? She said, yeah. I said, well, what are you doing tonight? And she sort of hesitated, and she goes, nothing. I said, well, let's, let's go out tonight. How about that? And she said, yes. And that began a relationship that started to go through that summer. Six weeks later, I told her I loved her, and 11 months later, we were married. That 10-second walk down the hall was one of the best walks I've ever taken. <laughs> I took the initiative. Someone had to get that thing going, right? And it was me. Jesus took the initiative. And he just didn't, okay, let's create something. He created for a purpose. He created us for relationship. Jesus in the very act of creation begins to introduce us to the God of the universe. 
what, what does this mean to you and me? What it means is, oh, I get it. Just by virtue of the fact that I'm here, I have a purpose. And Jesus was the one who took the initiative to do it. In our wedding ceremony, we exchanged rings, and I've shared this with you before. Inside my wedding ring is, is Renee said there's, there's a verse inscribed in there, or there's something inscribed in there. She didn't say what it was. I, I thought, I love you very much, or you're a wonderful man. I thought something like that would be in it. Instead, it was a, a scripture verse, which you have to really go, oh, that's nice when you see it. But you go, well, that's... You know what the scripture verse is? First John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. God takes the initiative to love us, and then we relate and share that love with other people. Advent is a reminder to you and to me that we are created beings, created by Jesus himself. So God just, first of all, doesn't take the initiative. Secondly, number two, Jesus is the one who shapes us. He shapes us as as we relate to God. He's the one who makes us who we are. So we're not just created for relationship, but we're uh, created. We're created for relationship. He he shapes us in, in terms of our our, our lives and, and, and who we are as, as human beings. David, in his beautiful Psalm 139, talks about the fact that God knit us together in our mother's womb. See, I was knit together in my mother's womb. There, there, is, a, there is an intentionality that David sees in, in the very fact that we are created. And he, he, he says, I realize that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. So it's not just a creation, but it's a creation for, uh, for purpose, for relationship. I have two children. Uh, I have a son uh, who lives in Seattle. I have a daughter who lives in Chicago. Um, two children, and, and uh, they are, as those of you who have had the privilege and have the privilege now of being parents know that your children somehow turn out different. You would think they would just all be the same, wouldn't you? These kids come from the same parents, they live in the same home, but there's so much difference there. And, and social scientists talk about nature versus nurture and, and, and what, what are we born with in terms of our personality and, and what is shaped and formed by our personality. Uh, my son is... Um, is a psychologist, uh, and uh, I'll let you determine why he's a psychologist. Is, is that because of our parenting? I don't know, but he's a psychologist. He's actually a very good one. My son had a personality that I just had to get to know over the years. He, he was just different than me, and uh, he's, my, he's my only son, and, and I love him dearly, uh, but it was just like we, we always seem to just sort of uh, not really connect. We, I don't think we really connected the way I, I really desired to until he was um, uh, going through high school, and then we began to connect more. But there's one thing we connected with all the way through his childhood, into his adolescence, into his adult years, and that was I was a soccer player. I played collegiate soccer. I loved the sport, and my son uh, was uh, also interested in soccer, and I began to coach him. Uh, as a young boy, and uh, he played high school. He went on to play collegiate soccer as well, and he's still a, a, an avid soccer fan. He's a Seattle Saunders fan, um, and uh, he just loves it. How did he learn that? 
He learned that in the context of relationship. My daughter, on the other hand, my daughter and I are simpatico. We just, she's emotional, I'm emotional. She, she wears her emotions on, on her sleeve and on her face. That's, that's the way I wear my emotions as well. And that was born into my daughter. When, when Christ created us, he created us as, as individuals. Here we are. We have the same basic genetic makeup. All of us have, have the, the same number of chromosomes. But here we are, all unique individuals. And those of your parents know that you've had the privilege of, of, of being involved in, in, in helping our children grow. I like what Irma Bombeck said. She had this little article. She said, if I had my life to live over again. And one of the lines was, was instead of wishing away nine months of pregnancy and the shadows over my feet, I, I would realize that this is my only chance to assist God in a miracle. I always appreciated that line. Jesus is the one who shapes us as we relate to God. You know, you were thought of before creation was even formed. You were thought of. And Advent is a reminder, not just of the coming of, of the Christ child, but that, that we were formed for relationship. Renee was, just the other day, she says, we were, she was driving over in East Orlando, and she uh, was driving down a road. We used to live in East Orlando. She was driving down a road, and the sun was in her eyes, and, and it just, just jogged her memory. She said, I remember driving that road with the sun in my eyes with two young kids in the back seat, taking one to soccer practice, taking one to dance. And she said, just, where did that go? Where did it go? It goes so fast. But we have the privilege of, of, of seeing those children uh, grow and mature. And what God calls us to do through his son is he calls us into relationship where, where we can grow and mature. So not only does he take the initiative, not only does he, he shape us as, as we relate to God, but I think the final thing that, that I see in this passage is Jesus is the one who explains our relationship and that, and with God and, and that allows our relationship with God to grow. So we're created, we're created as unique beings, but we're also created for growth. We're created to grow. We're made for relationship. We're made for those relationships to grow and deepen. I did uh, conferences uh, years ago with a, a gentleman called Wayne Grudem. Wayne Grudem wrote a book, Systematic Theology. It's very well known, very, very intelligent, wise man, very, very deep in terms of his theological thought. And, and it, was, it was fun for me to, to be with him and hear him take all this knowledge and, and sort of move it into the, into the, into the whole context of, of marriage and talking about the marriage relationship. And never forget, he, he got up in front of this large group of people and, and he, he we were talking about relationships, and he made this statement. He says, in the very nature of God, there is relationship. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In the very nature of God, there is relationship. And we are called on. You and I were called, and I'm reminded this Advent season, 
that it's not just that we have a relationship with God, but it's a relationship that we're called into so we can grow and continue to grow. Dr. Jay Lombard has written a book. This caught my eye as well. I, I, I've just downloaded the book. It's entitled The Mind of God, Neuroscience, Faith, and a Search for the Soul. I thought, well, that's an interesting title. I'll just buy the book because it's a great title. Um, it's actually very good. And, and he states uh, in the first part of this book, the drive to connect is deep within our biological makeup. The brain is an organ that is constantly striving for a relationship for that which is beyond itself. Well, that's interesting. Lombard isn't, isn't necessarily a, a believer in Jesus, although he's, he's a deep believer in God. And he's saying in the very way our brains are, are created, we naturally lean toward and desire to have relationships with others. The summer I met my wife, uh, we dated. It was, it was it's one of those you know, intense dating times because we're together in, in, in this uh, environment where we see each other every day. We got a chance to get to know each other and uh, uh, we spent a lot of time together. And I, I remember, it's funny, I asked my wife if she remembered this. She doesn't, but I remember it. Uh, there was a, uh, a walk that we had on the campus of Colorado State University where we were that summer. And I remember, I could take you to the place where, that, where we, we had that walk because... Uh, it was the define the relationship walk. Those are heavy walks, folks, I'm telling you. DTR stuff. And she's looking at me and she's going, well, well, what, what now? And, and um, I thought, well, that's a good question, what now, right? You know what she was asking? Great, we're, we, we know each other, we've got a good, we've enjoyed time together, but where is this relationship going? Where's it going? I think God, in his way, uniquely, I think for each of us, but in his way, asks all of us that question. Hey, where, where, where's our relationship going? What's your relationship with him today? And where is that going? Is, is, is it going in the direction that it needs to go? I have the privilege of doing weddings, and uh, there's always a, a, a homily that I do. You, you go to weddings, you hear, you hear the homily. So I'm going to give you mine. So you don't, if you don't ever get to hear me do a wedding, you'll know what I'm going to say. If you show up on the wedding, I'm going to say, you could, you could probably get up and give it, because these are the four points that I give when a couple, young couple or whatever their age stands before me and says, okay, we're ready, ready to, to do this thing called marriage. Because when, when God calls a man and a woman into a Christian marriage, he calls them, I think, to four specific things. He calls them to commitment for a lifetime, a commitment that does not waver. He calls them to trust, to be able to believe each other and, and to be honest with each other and to be authentic with each other. He calls them to forgiveness because there's no perfect relationship and we will, in the course of every relationship, probably do something that will hurt or offend the other. And that requires an asking and granting of forgiveness. And the last thing that, that I want this couple to understand is that they need to focus on a hope. 
that there is a future together. That isn't, this isn't just, okay, now we're married and now we do our own thing, but we do this together. There is, a, there is a hope that they have, and not just a hope for a family or a nice home or, or, or all the things you can do as a couple, but there is a, an eternal hope that needs to be there as well. And this is what I think Jesus calls us to. And this is what John reminds us of in this passage. He reminds us that, that Jesus made a commitment to us. And we're called to return that commitment to him. Jesus was the one who came and, and, and lived the, the sinless and perfect life. And we're called to live a life that will model ourselves after Jesus. Jesus came to forgive us. And by hanging on that cross 33 years after his birth, Jesus extends that forgiveness, not just to me, but to all mankind. Jesus comes and says, I want a relationship with you that looks to the future. There is a hope. There is a hope. Renee doesn't like me to mention my age all the time, but I, I sort of like to. I, I'm uh, 68. I'll be 69 this month. This is the month I turned 69 years of age. Do you know something? I'm still growing I, I'm still in a place where I'm, I'm, I'm just feel like I'm just beginning to understand who God is and who Christ is. I love him with all my heart, but I want my life to still be in a place where I'm growing and, and, and deeper in that relationship with God. <laughs> I had a young man, been married less than a year, and uh, he was in my office. We were talking about uh, just all the things in his life. And one thing was his marriage. And, he, and I wrote down this statement because I thought it was pretty profound. He says, people don't stay married because they're passive. Isn't that a good statement? People don't stay married because they're, you don't just get married and go, oh, well, it's work. Taking the initiative. Shaping that relationship. Causing that relationship to grow. Dr. Lombard goes on to say in his book, The Mind of God, the phenomenon of human language is central to understanding humanity's place in the universe. He says, language is the thing that does it. We, we get out of, outside of ourselves when, when we use what we call words to communicate to other people. And John, as he begins this gospel, says, in the beginning was the word, logos. In the beginning. Jesus was there. He's the word. And later on in that chapter, he says, no man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten son of God, what? He has explained him. So Advent is a time to remember that God's story is timeless. And that Jesus wasn't just a 33-year phenomenon, but one that existed from the beginning. He's the initiator, he's the shaper, and the explainer as it pertains to our relationship with God, the God of the universe. In this Advent, that's the good news, and that's the gift that keeps on giving. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for 
your son, I thank you that he is indeed the Logos, the Word that became flesh. I thank you that you are the one who calls us through him and through his creative power into relationship with you. And I pray that as, as we come into this Christmas season, that we use this time as a time of reflection, a time of evaluation, and a time of commitment where we come before you and listen to you and, and, and are reminded of the things that you have given us and reminded of the things that you call us to. And I pray for each person here, each man, each woman, that wherever we are in terms of our relationship with you, that we would be committed to going the next step into a closer and more abiding relationship with you. Thank you for your son. Thank you for Jesus. It's his, his glorious and powerful and creative name that we pray. Amen.